Welcome to the Trad Dads Podcast, where we examine cultural and political issues through the lens of traditional thought. All right, this is Levi Russell, and today I am going to be sharing an interview discussion sort of thing that I did with Anthony Stein of the Return to Tradition YouTube channel. So here is my discussion on the common good with Anthony. All right, YouTube, welcome to the to the Tradcast number five. My guest this week is Levi from the Trad Dads podcast, and I really need to change the name of this live stream at some point. So if you have any recommendations for it that aren't tongue-in-cheek, put them in the comments. Um, we're going to be talking today about the common good, what that is, what that is not, and what that means in like the life of the typical Catholic. So um, if you have questions in the chat, go ahead and post them. We have Super Chat enabled for the first time pretty much ever. Uh, uh, just a note about Super Chat. YouTube's policy is if uh, that su Super Chats that go, that are, shall we say, edgy or inflammatory about protect the classes will actually be deleted. The money will be taken from you and will be given not to, to the person you're trying to donate it to, in this case, this channel, but to a lobbying organization for that protected group. So, for example, if you don't want your money going to the ADL, maybe you should... Uh, be wise about how you super, uh, about the nature of your super chat uh, commentary. So, with that having been uh, said uh, and gotten out of the way, I'm going to uh, introduce our guest again. It's Levi from the Trad Dads podcast. I put a link to their channel in the comment and the community section of this channel yesterday. I can put another one if people want. Um, welcome, Levi. How are you today? Doing well, thanks. Uh, glad to be here and uh, glad to be talking about the common good um, i just want to clarify one thing there are two levi's uh sometimes on the trad dads podcast and i'm the 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 the, the sort of normal host and um so i i uh, uh not the canadian guy so why don't, why, don't, yeah, why don't you start us by telling us what you actually uh talk about frequently <coughs> on on that on your channel because um you seem to cover a wide variety of things. I saw you did a video on usury the other day and you went pretty deep, but you also talk about like the, the life of faith from what the most recent uh, episode looks like. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we kind of cover just things that we think are kind of important for um, Catholic men and specifically Catholic fathers, you know, younger Catholic fathers. Uh, you know, I'm in my early thirties and the other two guys that are on the show are, are around my age. And, uh, you know, we, we just cover things that are kind of in our own wheelhouses um, or just talk about kind of, you know, issues that, you know, fathers deal with. So, for instance, um, we did an episode on pets. Um, you know, none of us are really all that big on pets in general, but we kind of talked about sort of the, the um, sometimes the challenges and the difficulties of, 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 of pets in general and sort of the, the kind of crummy way that people um, – sort of latch onto pets and use them as a replacement for children and stuff like that in our generation. Uh, I'm an economist. Uh, I have a PhD in economics. And so I tend to talk a lot about economics when it's just me on the show. Um, but it's always about some kind of um, kind of important um, moral component to the economics. I try to um, you know, it's not just, you know, commentary about the Dow Jones industrial average or something. It's, it's, um, you know, like the, the example with usury, um, it was just me kind of talking about some things that I'd been reading um, related to interest and um, kind of how, kind of what would happen if we got rid of interest and how usury works and stuff like that. Um, and then there's other times where um, we'll have uh, Isaac on and he is, uh, he's, uh, he has a master's degree in theology. And so he, he typically brings in a little bit more um, Catholic theology type issues. Uh, and stuff like that. So we have a lot of fun with it. And of course, you know, I'm obviously open to uh, suggestions for episodes for any of us to talk about. Um, but we, we, we don't really do sort of like your channel um, is more, you know, obviously commentary based and stuff like that. We're not really commenting on sort of like day to day or, or, or news type stuff. We're just kind of talking about, uh, you know, big issues that are, that are relevant. So. Mm. So because you're an economist, I want to just get this obvious question out of the way for you before we get onto our topic. <laughs> the GDP is obviously the perfect measure of economic health and social prosperity, correct? <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's not. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, it's, it's been such a challenge for me over the past year or so as I've kind of come to grips with 
the the sort of um, the sort of divide between um, the 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 morality implied by sort of mainstream economics uh, and even and even non-mainstream economics, you know, the Austrian stuff like that or whatever, um, and 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 in a, a more authentic um, you know moral grounding, especially a Catholic one. Um, and you know, it was several months ago, it was just it just kind of hit me that's like you know I can either be you know, a, a faithful Catholic, or I can, you know, um, compromise on a dozen different things um, with, you know, this sort of um, classical liberal, uh, you know, mainstream economics point of view. Um, and so GDP, you know, is a good example of this, right? So, you know, um, you know, it's not a perfectly accurate measure of even what people think it is, right? So, well, I mean, right, the GDP is the gross domestic product, and that's just sure. functionally the dollar value. Basically, it's the dollar value of everything the country produces. Well, it's, that, it's the dollar value of all final goods and services. Yes, and remember, we live in a country that is heavily into the finance economy now. So right. that number is going to get grossly distorted when you start really adding in just the way the banking system and the uh, currency system works now in the United States and abroad. Well, yeah, and, and so there, there are several technical problems with it. Like, for instance, we have something called hedonic adjustments um, where, you know, like if your, your television gets quote unquote better, right? In other words, it gets more technologically advanced. Well, how do you, how do you account for, um, you know, the, the, the difference in the, the quote unquote value of that good, right? So like a TV in 1965 is not nearly as good as one in 2019. And so, um, you know, how, how do we how do we account for the increase in value of that good? Right. Uh, you know, because it's not just the price, right? Because the production process is more efficient now. So, it, it's there's a lot of hand waving. Um, but but on top of that, it's sort of the way I sort of think about it. I mean, I mean, even as an economist, it's like, okay, well, we have GDP, but what it, what should my utility function for that GDP look like? In other words, you know, if I'm going to be a moral person, you know, what how should I think about how important that GDP growth is? And right. if, and if, if the things that give me better GDP growth are going to diminish some other good thing in my life, um, well then, you know, I may not be able to put that into an economic equation. Right. So let me give an, ex let me give an example of yeah. this. It will hit home to my audience. who tends to really okay. care about the moral issues in plain language. So the pornography industry in the United States is probably making more money now than they've ever have. And from a purely utilitarian standpoint, that's probably a good thing. From anybody right. who cares about the common good, that's not a good thing. So right. I want to use that as a bit of a segue to talk about what the common good is, which is our topic for the day. So what, how would you describe the common good in sort of a Catholic social teaching frame? Because, you know, we're you know, trying to live in accordance with what the church has <laughs> taught. Yeah, so... The way the way I want to think about this, um, and, and as an economist, I'm going to frame it a certain way. But um, you know, the common good is is um, it's 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 something that is in sharing it, it's not diminished. Mm -hmm. So we can think about uh, the miracle of the loaves and the fishes, right? Mm -hmm. So that as as people shared, you know, they broke the bread, and and as they shared the fish, there was more and more of it, right? And at the end. You know, they they were collecting whole baskets full of both of those things, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, so the the common good, the, sort of the ultimate common good, is uh, you know the beatific vision, right? It's um, being in the presence of God. It's uh, the Eucharist, right? So if 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 there's a large community of Catholics, um, you know, in your in your society, in your cult, in your um, community, well, and they're all receiving the Eucharist after having gone to confession, all of that sort of thing. Well, you know. It's not like, it's not like, um, you know, I've got this watch, you know, on my wrist. Well, I have this watch and that means you can't, right? Mm -hmm. and, and if we try to divide it up, then we've broken the watch and now it doesn't work, right? Right. It's much less valuable. But, but the Eucharist is more valuable the more people use it. Yes. Right? I want to give you a, a, def a couple definitions from some of the official writings of the church on this. Sure. The common good um, uh, from the encyclical Mater et Magistra, which is uh, John the 23rd, 1961 encyclical. The, for those of you not conversant in Latin, its title means mother and teacher. 
quote, the common good is the complete development of all the people of the world. John the 23rd describes it as the sum total of conditions of social living, whereby persons are enabled more fully and readily to achieve their own perfection. And of course, in the achievement of your own perfection in this case is going to be the, you know, classical, more in more classical language, this is the pursuit of sanctity. That's, a, right. that's the first thing the church is concerned about. It's not, you know, social justice, which is, a, by the way, a term the church invented, and then it got flipped on its head by the world. Um, but it's uh, sanctity. And anything that, that violates your ability to achieve uh, sanctity and, the, and for your family to achieve sanctity is a violation of the common good and a violation of social justice, as the church understands it. Right. Um, so, you, I mean, you've, you've got some conciliar documents here, but you've got what well, there's the Bishops' Conference of England and Wales sort of understood this concept in, in the idea of interdependency. They say it's because we are an interdependent, the common good is more like a multiplication sum, where if any one number is zero, then the total is always zero. If anyone is left out and deprived of what is essential, I think that's a very important caveat there, essential, then the common good has been betrayed. And a lot of people go, well, that sounds socialist, but we're like, well, you gotta, the, one of the things people forget is that we live in a world now where everything is either done by a for-profit corporation or by the government. And really, we're forgetting that there's also this place where you and I are supposed to be doing things to work for the common good in our everyday lives. Um, that's the concept of subsidiarity, basically, in Catholic social teaching, which is where things should be taken care of at the lowest level possible of authority you know, possible. And you and I have authority to do things and working for the common good by doing things like taking loving our neighbor, literally our neighbor. <laughs> it's right. kind of an essential part of the common good. Yeah, and so I, I think there's a few things you can add into that. So, for instance, um, so what are these things that, you know, like you said, necessities, right? The things that we need, um, you know, and so a good example of that could be like equal protection under the law, right? Mm -hmm. and, and that's something that's just sort of assumed so that we can go about our daily lives properly, right? Mm -hmm. So that, you know, if I'm going to pass something on to my children or if I'm going to, you know, make a transaction with someone um, in a market, you know, we have to have, um, you know, equal protection under the law. Um, you know, typically governments provide us with currencies, right? Um, and at the very least, again, they, they give us this sort of legal framework in which a currency can, can thrive. Um, and so, you know, those, those are things that are sort of essential. Those are essential pieces for us to live a virtuous life, right? In, in this sort of imperfect world we live in, right? Um, and, and so those would be sort of, um, you know, the, the, those, those things foster the common good. And the common good itself is, in terms of political context, is, you know, what, what every person in a, in a polis, in a political society, ought to intend to create a just society. Right. And so, um, you know, we, we have to think about sort of, um, you know, people it's, it's, it's okay for certain people in that, in that polis to have different, um, different things based on different amounts of things, different, uh, you know, GDP, right. Or different income, uh, based on their different stations in, um, you know, their different roles. So for instance, the president, the president has, a, uh, a, a set of bodyguards, right? It has a secret service um, that, that is not afforded to anyone else in the same way, right? And that's in virtue of his office, right? He needs to be protected in a certain way. Um, and, and that protection that we pay for, right? So it's not socialism. It's, it's yes, it's commonly provided, but it's not, um, it's not just simply doled out to whoever, mm -hmm. right? It's not arbitrary. It's given to him because of his office. And, um, you know, so you can, you can think about, um, like, and, and sort of thinking about it the other direction. So like children, right? So children are not, um, you know, there's a sort of partial citizens, right? They don't, they don't fully have their own agency in the legal framework. Um, but, you know, insofar as they do their parents will, you know, they are participating in the common good. Um, and I think what confuses this stuff is, is sort of the language of economics. When we talk about goods, right? Goods and services. Um, you know, and, and yes, food and all of these things are goods um, that we need and they, and they foster the common good, uh, you know, insofar as we have virtue, right? Um, so, you know, there's certainly a possibility that in, a, in an alternate, you know, version of the current world, you know, we could have um, a, um, 
we, we could have a set of circumstances where people are much materially poorer, um, but, but, but where there's a lot more virtue, right? Where everybody goes to daily mass and, and this sort of thing. Um, and so that, that society would have more of the common good uh, than, than ours would. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm thinking also, it's hard for me to uh, think that a culture or a society like the one we live in that has, you know, abortion available on demand almost everywhere and anywhere is right. going to be ranking high on any kind of common good scale that you can measure. Yeah. And I want to, I want to pick up on something you said uh, about your, like, literally you said, you know, literally your neighbor. Mm -hmm. um, and I, and I think this is kind of an interesting insight that, um, that, that kind of can help us understand where we ought to be on sort of these political spectrums and stuff like that. Um, and so we, we often hear these two words in Catholic social teaching, uh, subsidiarity and solidarity. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and it's, it's very interesting if you, uh, if you look through the, uh, all the, the, the transcripts of, of talks and, and encyclicals and stuff from, Fran from Pope Francis, um, you get a lot more of solidarity and very little subsidiarity, right? I, yeah, I've, one of the things that I've seen, uh, I don't remember who the American Catholic commentator was, but they pointed out that the, the Republican Party is very good at subsidiarity, at least on paper. And the Democratic Party is very good at solidarity, but they both lack in the other value. And right, and 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 I think and I think what's what's really key about this is that when you separate the two, that's when you have the problem, right? So they actually work together, right? So solidarity is sort of this mutual fellow feeling that everyone in a community has for each other, right? And mm -hmm. of course, we have cognitive limits on you know the number of people we can share an authentic community with, right? So that gets to your point about being you know your actual neighbor. Right. So we can't have, you know, this whole this whole globalist idea of like, well, you know, we're all just, you know, sort of the the, um, you know, I'm a citizen of the world. Right. Well, you know, that just can't happen for you to be an authentic citizen. You have to have some kind of connection to the other people. Um, you have to have some kind of, um, you know, feeling of, of belonging to them. And, and you just simply can't do that with, you know, all seven billion or however many people there are on the planet. Right. Um, right. And, and, you know, it's maybe it's more appropriate for you to, you know, sort of care more, more about the well-being of your family and maybe the people in your neighborhood and the people in your community, you know, your town or city than the people in some other city far away. Right. And part of that's just because that's just a limitation we have. Like people just people just cannot um, we, we're just not wired that way. Uh, and I think Aquinas would have some good things to say about why we're wired that way. But the other thing is subsidiary. Right, so I actually. Go ahead, sorry. Oh, go ahead. Oh, well, I've got some of uh, Thomas Aquinas's uh, thoughts on the common good, or as he called it, the common wheel. Um, uh, let's see. Where is it on this? Oh, here we go. He says, actions are indeed concerned with particular matters, but those particular matters are referable to the common good, not as to a common genus or species, but as to a common final cause. According as the common good is said to be the common end. This is a this is a more pre precise definition than you're going to see in the Catholic Compendium of Social Doctrine, a tome of a book on Catholic social teaching that I have given my sort of you know scholarly interest. I guess um, he says that it, it, where where I'm looking at this also make uh, references that the sum total cannot mean a mere aggregate of things. It's not a you know common good is not a utilitarian cal calculus of the greatest possible conditions for the greatest number of social beings. For St. Thomas, it's an ordered totality, a totality of parts working together in one uniform way for a common goal. The common aspect in common good is not a catalog or an IHOP restaurant menu. This is a really cool article, actually, with a million individual options. It is the organic unity of varied and sundry parts working together for one, for one end. And remember, since it's in, let's, um, it's about, and it's about justice. This is a quote from the, uh, from various parts of the Summa. Justice, as stated above, directs man in his relations with other men. Now it is evident that all who are included in a community stand in relation to that community as parts to a whole, while a part as such belongs to a whole, so that whatever is the good of a part can be directed to the good of the whole. It follows, therefore, that all acts of virtue can pertain to justice, insofar as it directs man to the common good. It is in this sense that justice is called a general virtue, and since it belongs to the law to direct to the common good, as stated above, it follows that the justice, which is in this way style general, is called legal justice because thereby man is in harmony with the law, which directs the acts of all the virtues to the common good. So what we're talking about with the common good is essentially we're talking about 
it's a it's a it's sort of a measure of justice really and you know do we do you live in a just society when you have you know involuntary homelessness and i have to always couch it that way because i've met a number of homeless people who seem quite happy with their lot in life (laughs) (laughs) you know there are people like that out there and i won't hold it against them um right and so i i think you know this is um this is this is a good uh way to kind of frame things i think because you know you can obviously go too far in either direction right so subsidiarity um just definitionally it's just sort of um, the idea that the lowest or the smallest unit, political unit of society should control, um, you know, whatever is appropriate or whatever they can handle before a a higher or bigger unit um, handles something. So for instance, um, education of children, you know, maybe we let, let families handle that. Right, or maybe at the very most a community, but but it's certainly not just for the federal government to you know design and direct all education throughout the entire country. Um, whereas and then, it, and, then, and then use it as a means of uh, social conditioning yeah, beyond sure. what would be good. <laughs> right, right. right. Yeah, and, you know there are, there are a number of stories coming out of public schools now that we don't need to recount here that are grat moral and often the subject of headlines on life site news and other places like that right well so that and i think that's the thing too so you know if we think now now something that would be um you know appropriate for a national government would be national defense right i mean it's in the name for it to be national defense it has to be handled in some fashion by you know sort of the largest body you know in society right um and so i think i think again what happens is that these two things actually play together Right. So that if if so that solidarity is fostered by um, a, a, a system that obeys subsidiarity. Right. Or uses subsidiarity as its sort of um, defining principles. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so when when a, a family is is allowed to is sort of empowered politically to do what is right for them to do, for them to contribute to the common good, then they are able to contribute to the common good and they're able to foster that solidarity. But I think what happens is, you know, we have lefties that say, well, solidarity is the only thing that matters and who cares about subsidiarity, right? So this is all the sort of like nationalist, or sorry, not nationalist, sorry. Um, all this like, you know, socialist stuff where the national government's gonna do everything, right? Mm. And then the, the other direction you can go is just to say, you know, well, solidarity will just work itself out. We don't need to, you know, the political system doesn't need to foster um, any kind of, uh, uh, of unity, right? We can just, we can just, you know, the market will sort that out or some nonsense, right? Yeah, this is, this is where the fetishizing of the market comes in. Right. And so we, all we focus on is the subsidiarity angle, right? And so anytime you talk about, you know, some political unit in society needing to do something, you're automatically met with, well, what are you, a socialist? Why would you want the federal government to do X, Y, Z? And it's like, well, first of all, you know, I don't want the federal government to fix potholes on my streets, but I certainly want the local government to do that. I don't want to do that, right? I mean, that's, you know, the roads are commonly held and that's okay, you know? Um, so I think I think when we, the, the sort of, what, what Catholic social teaching expects of us is is to sort of marry those two together and to understand how, you know, how policy and, um, um, you know, our own productivity and our own use of markets uh, in a moral fashion can, um, can push us in, in, in the direction of the common good. Yeah, I'm thinking of this in terms of, well, one, the sort of, that, you know, the, the ongoing, ever ongoing national health care debate in the United States. Um, where I'm not against national healthcare as a concept. I dislike the concept of, you know, nationalized health insurance because I don't think that solves the problem, but I have, you know, issues with a society that utterly lacks virtue enabling its government, which utterly uh, lacks virtue to then make the life and death decisions for its own citizens in that way. Um, And I don't know how to, how to, you know, how to reconcile those things. Because, you know, on the flip side, this system, this way things are set up now isn't exactly just either. It doesn't contribute to the common good. In fact, it severely undermines the common good. So if you have a system, you have a system where people can go bankrupt for medical bills, 
that's a problem. Yeah, so I, I actually am, am reasonably well read on this subject. Um, <clears throat> and essentially, um, what, you know, what, what, it's, it's one of these frustrating things, right? Where we're forced into these binaries, right? It's like either we can have the, the British system where the government is, you know, murdering children or, you know, we can have, um, you know, an oligarchy of the insurance companies, right, that dictate care and, and overpay hospitals and, and all of this sort of thing. But yeah. the funny thing is, is that in, you know, in, in, in the memory of the past two generations, there was a system in the United States, and I hate to even call it a system, really, because it was very subsidiarity focused. Um, and there's a book. And I'm going to look it up while I'm talking here. Um, that there was a system that was essentially um, run on the local and community level, um, and what 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 it was is you had organizations like you know the Elks Lodge or something, right? Um, but and there, and not and the word let's not let the word lodge <coughs> excuse excuse me let's not let the word lodge make people think we're talking about like Masonic organizations or anything. Yeah, right. Of course. No, no, these no. are, these are like your grandpa's drinking and cigar club. That right. charitable so work. Another one you could use is the fraternal order of police. Right. Um, you know, so these were uh, sometimes occupation based organizations and sometimes they were just social clubs. Right. And, and in some places where there were sort of ethnic enclaves, you know, maybe there were like, you know, black only um, organizations in the South. Um, and these existed basically through the 1940s. And like, and honestly, the at one point, the Knights of Columbus probably took care of some of this th these things too, because the, well, the Knights of Columbus used to be a much, I, I feel like a much more dynamic, I want to say, organization than they seem to be now. But well, yeah. the Knights is actually a really interesting case of this. So the Knights um, have done basically what a lot of these organizations did. Um, so the Knights went from sort of providing explicit aid to widows to becoming basically an insurance company. <laughs> um, and so, you know, I'm not condemning them, right? They're just doing what they have to do. But um, there's an example in Topeka, Kansas, and this is in this book. So here's the name of the book. From Mutual Aid to the Welfare State, Fraternal Societies and Social Services, 1890 to 1967. Now, obviously, that's an academic book. I think it was a guy's dissertation. His name is David T. Beto, B-E-I-T-O, um, not Beto O'Rourke. <laughs> but uh, it's a fantastic book because it basically takes you through the, 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 this period of time in the U.S. where we had these fraternal societies. Um, and like I said, the, I'll take one example from uh, this, this organization called Securities Benefit in Topeka, Kansas. And it has since become uh, sort of an insurance company, uh, life insurance, I believe. And what they did, you know, so they, they had their sort of, you know, normal activities, you know, and fun for the families and, and all this sort of thing, right? And, or, you know, dad drinking kind of thing, whatever. But what, what you would do is if you, you had two or three days wages, you could get medical care up to minor surgery for your whole family, uh, you know, with two or three days wages. Um, and the way it would work is these organizations would kind of um, would, would, would contract a, a doctor, a physician. And so, um, you know, even if you, you couldn't pay, like, let's say, you know, you couldn't make your payment, you know, this, this three month, this quarter, right? Well, well, we let, you know, we'd let it slide, right? Um, but, you know, after a point in time, again, you know, there's there's this community built around this service. Right. And so people were kind of like, hey, look, man, you know, you need to pay like, you know, we're all trying to benefit from this and we're going to lose our doctor if you don't, you know, you need to contribute. Um, and so there's there's sort of a policing uh, that, that happens because the community is there. Mm -hmm. um, and, and essentially what happened to these organizations was, uh, number one, um, the American Medical Association and, and state uh, medical boards um, basically destroyed them. So in the 1920s, the AMA was successful in reducing the number of um, medical schools in the United States dramatically, which reduced the number of doctors, pushing up doctors' wages. Um, and then the hospitals uh, and, and the, the administrators of those hospitals at the state level basically went on propaganda campaigns to, you know, say how dirty and evil these, um, you know, these lodge medicine, this, they called it lodge medicine. Uh, 
how evil this lodge medicine practice was. Um, and then you have things like, uh, you know, the, the, um, the, uh, uh, the, the payroll taxes being put on, uh, I think in the 60s is when they were really ramped up, but payroll taxes, so, you know, taxing your, your dollar, your money income. But then, of course, you know, employers are going to try to compete for talent. And the, so the way they did it was they said, okay, well, it, it costs us money if we just increase the cash salary, you know, but, but we can offer these fringe benefits that are exempted from the taxes in the law, right? Mm-hmm. So we'll just offer everybody, you know, these, these nice insurance packages. And so that's when your health insurance got tied to your job. Um, and so, you know, now you can tell the story either way you want, right? You can say, oh, look, you know, the evil insurance companies did blah, blah, blah. Or you can say, look, the government, you know, didn't do its job and it incentivized this horrible practice, right? But whoever you put the blame on, the bottom line is we had a massive, um, you know, uh, usurpation of, you know, legitimate local, uh, you know, solidarity or uh, subsidiarity. And it, and it caused a massive rift in society that has harmed our solidarity. Um, and so, you know, we're, we're stuck in this binary now. But the funny thing is, it's like, um, so you can go to, there's organizations like Atlas MD that's empowering doctors to basically just get rid of their insurance practices. Um, huh. And they just, you go cash and, and it's a sort of a monthly fee for care from the doctor. And it's, and it's very inexpensive. I mean, I pay... I mean, just for me, just for my family, like four fifty a month is my premium, uh, and then of course my my employer pays some too, um, you know. Uh, but but you can you can get these plans, and they're like you know sixty bucks per adult and like twenty thirty dollars a month per uh, child, and then you know you get a catastrophic plan. And I mean, you know, thankfully we've got Christian organizations building these catastrophic plans, um, and now you know now what about hospitals, right? So. Uh, so it's interesting if if you go to Oklahoma City, there there is a a, a a a clinic there called the Surgery Center of Oklahoma, and I'm convinced that someday you know these you know some some HHS secretary is going to have these guys raided and put in prison. But basically, what they do is if you go to their website, they will tell you how much it costs to have you know knee surgery or you know whatever you need. Um, you know, imagine that the ability to know how much you might need to pay if you just want to cut them a check. Right. Exactly. And so now they do insurance because of course you got to have a whole flock of people to deal with the insurance bureaucracy. And so they just have, you know, I mean, good grief, right? They just have a medical staff. Imagine that. They have a medical staff and a couple of uh, clerical staff to (laughs) to handle the people at the door. The prices are like all inclusive. They include all the anesthesia and all that stuff. There's none of this, you know, tacking things on, um, so it, it, it's just one of these things where like people just have to get out of this silly binary and it's not like, Oh, you know, magical third way, blah, blah, blah. It's like, no, there's in the concrete recent past, <laughs> we, we had a completely different way of doing things that was, I think more consistent with a Christian conception of the common good. And certainly more consistent with Catholic social teaching in terms of subsidiarity and solidarity. Um, and, and we've just allowed you know, the government and the interests that lobby them, you know, put the blame on whoever you want. I don't care. The point is that happened and we have to figure out, I think, how to get around it. And the way it's happening is, you know, these brave doctors are just coming out and saying, look, I'm just going to go to a cash practice. And the states that allow them to do it are allowing them to do it. And they've got, um, there's an organization called the American the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons or something like that. And they are lobbying state governments to allow um, you know, these cash practices to exist. Um, oh, I, I wish them the best of luck in their battle against the insurance yeah. lobby. Yeah, you bet. You bet. The, um, I'm just wondering how much, you know, if this is uh, the rise of this practice, this, insur- you know, uh, what you described with the destruction of the, of, you know, lodge medicine, as they called it, um, how that coincided with the uh, <coughs> sudden prevalence of usury in the United States in the post-war period. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I'm, I've been reading a lot more on usury lately, and I, and I think that it, it really is sad that we don't have more guidance on the concept of usury from, um, you know, from the hierarchy. Um, we have a handful of encyclicals, or not even really that, just, you know, letters and stuff like that. Um, 
There's well, not. I think I think you're going to have a hard time with the American hierarchy doing that because they are so in bed with the federal government to get yeah ridiculous amounts of money from the federal government for their yeah. for the various federal programs they run. So my question to you is sort of what what did you have in mind? And you're you're talking about this rise of usury um, after the Second World War. What um, what what specific thing are you are you talking about there? I'm thinking about just the intersection here of the of you know fi of the the various uh, financial interests the right and the rise of debt culture in the United States <coughs> because you know the, most people don't realize that the first credit card didn't really come into existence until the 1950s. Yes, credit existed, and you can get credit at places before that, but you know a walking credit you know slip in your pocket that was good at most anywhere that was a thing that didn't show up until the 1950s and. You know, that's right. when so you're debt saying started explode. That's when debt started exploding at every level of society. Was in the was in the post war period, right? So that I think that makes. I mean, I, I see what you're saying now. So it's not it's not as if, uh, you know, people uh, all of a sudden you know started charging higher interest rates or or whatever. And I think that's a bad definition of user anyway. But but yeah, you're right. I mean, so I mean, this is one interesting way to think about this. Is is if we go to you know GDP and technological progress, right? And we think about these concepts. Well, here's here's one example of you know technological progress that really has probably harmed to a to a large extent, sort of the moral fabric and the common good of the public, right? So, I mean, what's what's the key factor there, right? What 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 makes it so you can have you know a, a line of credit in your pocket? Well, you have to have a certain amount of technology for that, right? So, yeah. you know, certainly the, the 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 legal framework that gives us, you know, sort of just commerce and 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 allows us to improve our lives that way um, can also be used to, um, you know, create. Uh, I mean, you know, with the with the use of telephone lines and all that stuff, which again can be good, um, can give us credit cards, right? And so they, you know, you just need, all you need is a phone line. I mean, these days, heck, it's, you know, all you need is a, a phone and one of those little swiper things for the phone, right? Yeah. Um, and, 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 and people just sort of treat credit cards indistinguishably from their bank accounts. And, and it, well, it's, it's not even that, like if you pay attention the next time you're shopping or the next few times you're shopping and Notice how different you may react when you're paying with some, even your debit card, not your credit card, but your debit card versus cash in your wallet. Yeah. And notice how your spending habits change when you're actually holding even that silly fiat currency that doesn't, that people will say doesn't have any value of its own. Even just the the, the tangible bent difference between spending of you know the twenty dollars in your wallet versus twenty dollars in your that you're using from your debit card, there's there is an attitude change. Most people experience that when they're you know, trying to spend more with cash than with plastic. And, and, it, and it's just one of these things where it just shows you to an extent how sort of unnatural this kind of thing is, you know, and, and, it, and it reminds me of my conversion. I, I, I didn't grow up Catholic, but, you know, the, the idea of sacramentals was, was really um, interesting to me because, you know, so I wear the brown scapular and the green scapular and it's like, you know, just having this, this physical thing, you know, even 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 in its very simple uh, role as just a reminder to pray, um, you know, it's like we are visceral beings, right? We 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 need uh, sort of physical contact with things for us to really understand them. And yeah, when when it's just a piece of plastic that you know, um, you know, it, it's the same piece of plastic whether it's worth you know uh, twenty thousand dollars or twenty cents, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and it just it doesn't it just doesn't operate with our bodies the way that. You know, uh, you know, even something like you said, you know, cash. I mean, yeah, whatever. You know, it's, it gets inflated to an extent, or uh, you know, loses its value. Sure, but but it, it just seems like such so much less of a of a of an odd you know deviation <laughs> than um, you know than a debit card or a credit card is. Yeah, and I I think you know I, I you pretty much these days have to be asleep at the wheel to not realize that we're not just talking you know as a debt culture, we're not talking about the national debt, although that's a terrifying number. Like I can't even fathom the 21 trillion or something <laughs> is now or yeah. what, what the effect that's going to have on, you know, economic growth in the future and just the stand, you know, people's quality of life, but you know, individual debt, whether it's student loans or medical debt or credit card debt or every, anything else that yeah. generally prevents you from, you know, just giving your family a better life experience. There are people out there who can't 
make you know their basic ends meet because they have a credit card bill to pay because they you know a few years earlier did something really stupid like yeah. partied all the time with their credit card or something right and and i and so yeah i mean i think there's certainly uh, a case to be made that uh you know the availability of credit like this um it, it, it allows people to really, or it, 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 it makes it so much easier for them to lose sight of their virtues. Um, and, and, but, but just purely from an economic standpoint as well. I mean, so we think about, uh, you know, sort of the, uh, the, the rising cost of different things like, you know, home values um, or, or tuition rates, um, you know, and these things, these things have risen because, uh, you know, because credit is so cheap because rates are so low. Um, you know, and so if we just artificially set the rate of, um, of, of interest for these, you know, student loans at some low fixed amount, then, um, of course, uh, you know, the, the, the cost of the underlying asset that we're borrowing to buy is going to rise. You know, what the, uh, do you know what the, uh, the interest rate is for student loans? I think right now it's about high six, low seven percent. Yeah, I think, I think depending on different different types of it was between six and a quarter and seven and a quarter i think yeah and that sounds low if we're compared to like you know the kind of credit card most people who are you know freshmen through juniors in college are probably getting because those can go up to like i think legally 29 percent right now but yeah, seven, yeah, yeah. you know when you're talking like say sixty thousand dollars at a private school your federal loan at seven percent is still a pretty significant chunk of change every year Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and there's all these different ways that they, you know, they're not solving the problem. They're, they're just um, kind of kicking the can down the road because I mean, there's all these different, you know, uh, like, oh, the, you know, the, the, the payments are deferred while you're in school. <laughs> and it's like, my goodness, you know, compound interest uh, can just sneak up on you way faster than you can imagine. Yeah. there. I know that the, uh, with the pay deferred payments for, subsidized loans they don't occur they don't start accruing interest until you uh are out of school and out of right. your um out of your grace period then they start right. accruing interest but you know this is why I, I briefly worked in a financial aid department of a, of a university before my conscience got to me <laughs> and it was a uh, i always advise people to do what i didn't do when i was in college because i was dumb and that's throw any money you can at it whether it's five bucks a month or a hundred dollars a month whatever you can if you're taking a loan if you do that, <laughs> you know, that you will, you will be very thankful at the end that you did because you may yeah. end up paying for like three or four years of interest <laughs> or preventing three, three or four years of interest yes. and buying yourself time to pay, to, to uh, pay the thing off faster. And there's, you know, and, and I think, I mean, you know, you're starting to hear phrases like K through 16 education. <laughs> You know, well, and it's like that's because of perpetual childhood. Sure, but I, and I, and I think that's I think the thing is it's like the this sort of there's there's two things that feed off of each other, right? It's it's the parents telling the kids, you know, not letting their kids grow up, right? Not not treating a 12 year old like a 12 year old and a you know a 16 year old like a 16 year old. They're treating them all like six year olds, right? And trying to sort of helicopter them or you know one one or the other extreme, right? Being helicopter parents or just letting them do you know whatever the heck they want and not and not trying to, you know, get them to understand boundaries. And honestly, um, it even comes to little things like, you know, not questioning your 17 or 18 year old kid when they, you know, come home with a new uh, comic book character t-shirt or, you know, when they're, yeah. when they should start be thinking about, you know, just presenting themselves as, a, you know, as a grown man or as a grown woman, you know, it's like it's, I don't know. They, I mean, this can go deviate into so many areas like, you know, modesty and what it actually means and everything else because the common good is such a almost vague or all-purpose term that it it's more of an umbrella term that can cover almost everything that is an ill in our in the culture today yeah and, and i i think maybe to 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 be a little more specific with it um you know i think i think it goes back to 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 understanding your place in the polis right in in the political society um you know and so uh, you know, I think it's, it gets into some of these interesting things like identity, right? Um, you know, and so it's certainly legitimate to think of yourself differently when you become, you know, like in, in our case, you know, a father, right? Yeah. Um, your, your role in society is different, right? Now you are tasked with providing for and forming the consciences of, um, you know, future citizens, right? Um, 
And, and so it's, it's one of these things where, you know, perhaps um, it, it would foster the common good for, um, you know, for employers to sort of uh, pay their employees based on, um, you know, their, uh, their status as, you know, a single person or a father of two or a father of four or whatever. Yeah, you're going back to the, uh, to the old, the, the, what the church has always advocated for, which is the family wage. Which ruffles a lot of fe the feathers of a lot of Americans because it, you know, yeah. while while I definitely understand and in some cases will champion the kind the idea of you know just absolute merit, the family way you know ultimately if family is the cornerstone of society then it should take primacy in pretty much everything. Well, and so there's a few things to say. So number one, it is it is merit, right? Um, it's just merit in the sense that you know if if the employer sees themselves as you know, just simply, you know, uh, somebody who, who's just, you know, a building with a factory in it, right? Um, well, okay. But, you know, if they see themselves as part of the community, right, that the, the, that the thing that they're producing is, is for the good of society, right? Um, then, of course, they would want, you know, to pay their employees in accordance with the good of society as well, right? In, in accordance with the common good. And and so it's, it's not, um, you know, and, and you get this from, you know, sort of the, there's always an argument about the market, right? And it's like, look, you know, market prices are contingent on our morality. Um, you know, market prices don't just come down to us on stone tablets, right? They are, they, they, they are, they are the result of a moral process, right? Where people will simply say something like, look, I'm just, you know, for instance, I mean, just think about something very simple, like buying a car, right? You, you have a certain set of moral principles around that purchase, right? Number one, you're not going to buy from somebody you don't like. Um, you know, you're not going to pay sticker price, right? I mean, there's just, there's conventions in society. Uh, you know, most employers, we, we all know that we have tips. So you pay wait staff less than, you know, a, a normal minimum wage, right? And maybe that's not just, but the point is there is a moral framework there, right? Like I should tip if the service is good. And so contingent on that, the employer makes a certain offer of pay to the wait staff. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's one of these things where it's, it has nothing to do with sort of opposition to the market as this, uh, you know, nebula, nebulous, uh, you know, thing, right? It's what it does is it's, it's contrary to an ideology based on the market. Um, and so, um, you know, for instance, um, if we have, uh, you know, well, let me say one more thing, sort of purely economic about this. So there's an economist, <coughs> excuse me, named uh, Arnold Kling, um, who on his, he's a, he's a, he's a great blogger um, and he has a PhD in economics, but he, um, he talks about the fact that, you know, in, in, you know, when we make this reference to, you know, uh, market wages and all this sort of thing, if, um, if we're talking about, uh, you know, what someone ought to be paid, right? We say the wage equals the marginal product of labor, right? Well, the problem there is that no one could ever actually compute a marginal product of labor unless the person is actually producing the product directly. But for Pete's sake, most of us, our jobs are basically overhead. Mm -hmm. uh, and so there's no way to compute, you know, a, a marginal product. There's no way to really know, you know, that, that person's marginal contribution. And so, you know, they say, oh, well, you know, the, the market just, you know, tends toward that level. And it's like, well, yeah, in theory, but in the real world, these things are always in flux, right? The, the target is always moving. Um, and so I think there's a way to sort of baptize Hayek, um, you know, some of these, these market thinkers and, and, and sort of bring their insights uh, to something reasonable here. But, you know, whoever does, whoever does that will be successfully does that maybe in the future uh, the Thomas Aquinas of economics. <laughs> Well, you know, Thomas Aquinas, uh, a lot of his followers had had, had some uh, good things to say about starting economics. So, yeah, uh, that's really helpful. But so, um, you know, so let me let me come up with a, a well, we have an episode of the Trad Dads podcast where we talked about um, where we talked about the minimum wage. And, and one of the examples we got uh, was a, a firm. It's a tech techie type type firm. And what they would do is, you know, people would have like, you know, a basic salary that would be, you know, whatever. 
Um, and then you would let them know how many dependents you had, right? So, um, you know, maybe this is a little bit better concept than just, you know, how many children you have. Well, you know, how many dependents do you have? Well, you know, my wife doesn't work, so she would be one of my dependents. You know, my mother-in-law staying with us, you know, so she's a dependent. Um, so you would get a bonus that was baked into your paycheck um, based on how many dependents you had. And it was like two or $3,000 per dependent. And so, you know, they had, you know, two guys, you know, had the same basic salary, but if one of them had three dependents and the other one had one, well, the guy with the three dependents got paid more. Um, you know, and, and to me, this is, this is all to the common good. This is perfectly in line with, you know, sort of, um, uh, you know, it's, it's perfectly just for the employer to be able to pay these people different rates on whatever, you know, uh, certainly on this basis, right? Certainly on the basis of their sort of contribution to the common good, right? And and the guy with three kids is, is contributing more to the common good than the one with one kid. I, you know, I'm reminded of, for some reason, I'm reminded of something um, that I remember from, I think it's from Rerum Navarum, Pope Leo XIII's groundbreaking encyclical that pretty much kicked off the modern social teaching encyclicals of the church, though he did talk about social issues well before he, he released that, uh, that encyclical. And that's where in the section where he's talking about organized labor, because when he's talking about organized labor in there, he's not talking about the kind of labor unions that we could think of today. The first principle of the organized labor or one of the, the one of the grounding principles is that they should protect the faith of the worker. And in addition to, you know, uh, negotiating with the labor in you know, you know, the collective bargaining for you know, collectively bargaining for a better, uh, more just wage from the employer. They're also protecting the faith of the worker. And that's one of those things that seems lost on us today. Well, certainly, certainly you know, beating up scabs, right? The people who crossed the picket lines uh, was, was not <laughs> preserving the faith of the, of the employee, right? <laughs> right. But um, so it's when we're talking about the common good, you always have to, people need to always remember the, the life of faith is this, and how the society, how our civilization actually either assaults the life of faith or, you know, strengthens or enables us to live fuller lives of achieving sanctity. Because remember, the common good is essentially the ability for everyone to achieve sanctity and to, be, you know, and to achieve sanctity, your, probably your basic essential needs need to be taken care of. You know, you're not hungry unless you're fasting voluntarily. You're not, you know, homeless unless you're doing so voluntarily you know you're not suffering unnecessarily because of some sort of social uh, social condition and it's one of those it's one of those principles that makes a lot of people you know uncomfortable in you know in our in you know today because we live in a hyper individualistic society even our socialists are bizarrely individualistic just go listen to them talk about you know my truth go listen to them talk about um you know identifying as x whatever that is you know the the, the gender debate going on and everything else so well and a lot of that stuff you know, well, I, I completely agree with you on the whole end of it I, I don't i'm not educated well enough on sort of the philosophical and and uh you know um uh political you know ways of thinking to understand you know to really articulate why I think that's individualistic, <laughs> but, but yeah, I, I agree with you. It's, it's, it's very, it, it really has become sort of an extension of sort of the me generation kind of thing. Mm -hmm. it's like we walk around with these little devices that are effectively mirrors, um, you know, and it's like, of course that's going to, um, you know, re result in uh, a lot of narcissism or something like that. Right. Right. I, this is going to sound weird from a couple of guys on a podcast on YouTube saying this, but I saw a headline earlier today that made me just want to die inside. And it said that the, uh, the, like the number one desired career among generation Z is to be a YouTuber. Part of me kind of died when I saw that. <laughs> yeah, that's um... because like the, the stereotype of the YouTuber is, well, I mean, it's, it can be pretty narcissistic. There's a, there's a reason Cultural one of the reasons there's a number of reasons I don't appear on camera most of the time, even though I am going to move eventually towards doing that, but I don't want to make it a common, like my everyday practice because my ego doesn't need any help. Right. <laughs> well, and with sunglasses looks cool anyway. So yeah. well, you, you can think of, you can thank one of our mutual colleagues for the original design of this, <laughs> but, uh, 
I don't know. Originally, Mike, my, my, if you go back to like my earliest videos, I was using uh, a really grossly pixelated version of uh, Pope Pius XIII from The Young Pope. And then I briefly did a tour as Torquemada when the abuse scandal broke out last summer. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Yeah. Well, you know, Inquisition when, as they say, but right, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, it's it's one of these things where I, I don't know if I if we we really are justly blaming the parents or justly blaming you know Gen Z itself. It's it's tough because obviously you know children get a lot from their parents, but at the same time, there's a there's there's a certain point when you know you kind of it, you're, it's sort of incumbent on you to sort of snap out of it and. and recognize that, you know, things aren't going to improve if you don't, um, you know, figure out how to make that happen. And I think that fits in with the common good, right? The, the idea is that, you know, we're not, um, you know, we, we have a contribution to make and, and as, you know, malformed as our childhood could have been or as bad as our current economic circumstances are, uh, they can always be, um, you know, they, they, they can be overcome, uh, I think, in general. Uh, and there's, there's uh, you know, we, we, need to, we need communities to, uh, to help with that, but, but we need to foster those communities. Did we lose him? I think we lost him. Well, I guess uh, if Anthony's not here and people can still hear me, uh, if you have questions uh, or, or anything like that, please put them in the chat and I'll, and I'll try to address them if, uh, assuming we're still live here. Anthony, if you can hear me, I cannot hear you. Okay, good deal. Does anybody have questions or anything they want to bring up?
Thanks for listening to the Trad Dads podcast. If you enjoyed our show, please subscribe on your favorite podcast app and consider giving us a five-star rating on iTunes. It really helps us out.